We'll do it live. Fuck it. Do it live. I can, I'll write it and we'll do it live. Fucking thing sucks. All right. So it's live show for this week. We got myself, Mike He Him from Turn Left's podcast. We got Nick He Him from the Intervention podcast and Nat He Him from Collective Action Comics podcast. What is up, you guys? How's it going? How are we doing? Angry and raging as usual. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, like doing, I like doing the live show for that reason. I like that we can just kind of let loose and just really fucking let it out. But um, yeah. the first thing I got on the docket is not actually angering. It's just kind of funny, like the fucking the Freedom Cities. So I just heard about this like a couple hours ago. <laughs> it just came out a couple of days ago. But like, um, I'll just pull up the article. But um, yeah, I mean, the gist of it is what he's like promising flying cars and shit. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. There's not a, a blurb here that I can read really quick. I'll just read the article itself. So, modern cities and flying cars might sound like the makings of an episode of the 1960s cartoon, 1960s cartoon The Jetsons, where a fictionalized family flew around an orbit city. For former President Donald Trump, however, it's the foundation of a new set of futuristic policy proposals. In a video set to be released on Friday, Trump will call for a quantum leap in the American standard of living. Trump's plan, shared in advance with Politico, calls for, a holding, calls for holding a contest to design and create up to 10 new, quote, freedom cities, built from the ground up on federal land. It proposes an investment in the development of vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, so helicopters, I guess, the creation mm-hmm. of, quote, hives of industry sparked by cutting off imports from China. That's a good one. Keep, keep, a, keep yeah. a tab on that one. Right. And a population surge sparked by, quote, baby bonuses to encourage would-be parents to get on with procreation. To get on with procreation. I mean, it's like, <laughs> ooh. Um, you also get thrown in jail if you have an abortion, right, in these freedom cities, I'm assuming. I would imagine that's going to uh, be a component. Yeah. Yeah. You get thrown in jail if you teach anything uh, not in English, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. But also, like, this whole thing sounds just like uh, like Elon Musk stuff, just, like, unbound. Like, like it makes Elon Musk look, like, um, it's considered shit, and, and metered. Like, it's ridiculous. Yeah, it's the libertarian, conservative utopia that will never fucking happen right because there'll be flying cars for the ultra rich in these yeah. cities right and there'll be poor working class people in jail for having abortions well there i mean there won't even be flying cars for the rich there will be a couple helicopters that there would yeah. always have been for some rich people but like right yeah my first thought my immediate thought when i see that it says it's going to be built on federal land is like oh this is like a scheme to grab some federal land to privatize mm-hmm. it, to then do some other money-making scheme, and there will never be anything built on here. Like, not a thing. Like, not a thing that you would recognize as a, like, you'll have some compounds, I guess. Maybe they'll build some, like, far-right, reactionary, like, uh, little, like, I don't know, intentional community where they, like, start arming yeah. up and, like, eating each other. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe but next not... to a mine, too, to extract yeah, resources right. from uh, federal land. Yeah, you want, if we want to kind of keep bringing it back to something I think we're planning to bring it to uh, later... Uh, this is what's like, this is going to be if this ever got off the ground, which of course is not, it's not going to happen. But like, if this were ever to get off the ground and these cities actually got made and no one's obviously going to move to them or live in them, it's going to be exactly like what they project as the criticism of China's ghost cities, right? Like China makes all these cities and then nobody lives in them, you know, and then, and then we hear no fucking end of it, you know, disregarding the fact that you know, 90% of the apartments in America are higher rent with nobody living in them, right? This is that just times 10. So what is like the veracity of like these ghost cities in China? Because like, I, that's always something that I saw and I never really looked into it because it just felt like propaganda or they were definitely like misleading um, 
at best. But I, I, I have to admit, I never really looked that deeply into them or into those headlines. Oh, it's just that it was as, future planning. Oh, yeah, sorry. It's future yeah. planning. It's a five-year plan. Yeah. It's literally like what uh, the DPRK is doing, but like supercharged because of more resources, right? They build these whole cities. They, re- they build the infrastructure. They build uh, um, places to live. They have the parks ready to go. And then, of course, they start moving poor people from working-class areas into them. Right. And it's not like they're doing it against their will or anything. It's like one of my very favorite fucking anti-China things from The Guardian in 2018 was... Uh, that China was forcing all these like extremely poor farmers to move into fancy new apartments, literally like a hundred feet down the hill. At what cost? At what yeah, cost? Yeah, at what cost? <laughs> they all they like they showed the layout of like their fucking like IKEA L couches with the big flat screen TV they gave all these people, and now these people finally have running water because they moved down the hill oh. they were living on, and the water comes from the streams. Like, and China just built them these homes for free. Like, but of course, this is authoritarian. So I wanted China to have like this a... farmer and his family that his uh, that slaved on this plot of land for generations to uh, this uh, fancy yeah. new apartment, right? I wanted to have like a, a hot take on the uh, hives of industry sparked by cutting off imports from China. But all I can really think of to say about it is that that is the part of all of this that will most not happen. Like yeah. that is the the lead the least uh, you know or the most fictitious part of this. Like, I don't understand what they even think that that means. Like, what do you do? You cut off your biggest trade partner. You cut off, like, the cheapest source of, like, everything that America gets, like, whether it's raw materials or finished products. It's like, how does that work in your minds, even as professed capitalists? Like, I don't understand the... Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's an absolute heightening of the contradictions, right? Like you think that things are bad now because of the inflation caused from like the sanctions on Russia. Just imagine what's going to happen to the working class if we actually go to war with China or stop. No, it's, you know, it's going to be really funny because I imagine the U.S. would go to war with China and then still trade with China. Like I may, have, I feel like I've said it on here before, but like I feel like that's a plausible scenario that like the U.S. would buy weapons from China to then try to fight China with, like. Well, and also because it'll be a fucking proxy war through Taiwan. Yeah. That that's that's going to be the most likely instance of this like breaking off. I mean, you can see that they've actually heightened, and it, it's small numbers of people, but like I think I saw some headline about them quadrupling and the 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 troop presence or the personnel mm-hmm. presence on the ground in Taiwan. And I mean, it went from like thirty to two hundred or something like that. But those two hundred people are probably operations training specialists etc mm-hmm. etc et to actually like try to train a proxy force right it'll be it'll be what they do because you know what they're we're, they they know this too well by now right because if we actually have people on the on the ground from the US going to die there'll be a fucking backlash right which is why yeah. there's not such as such a big backlash with ukraine as there should be i mean there's one building a little bit but it's not as heightened because there's not you know the boys being home brought home in fucking caskets like they would i mean they will they'll just be private mercenaries they'll be blackwater sure right but it won't there won't be like you know the pomp and circumstance and Mm -hmm. the fucking you know things on and the things on cnn and fox news about you know another one got brought home in a fucking body bag right yeah and that's how they'll they'll do it right wasn't it one of you guys that posted the thing in the group chat of uh it was like an Australian, no, Austrian soldier who said he just like takes off his uniform and signs a contract and now he's not a soldier of Austria anymore and now he's fighting in Ukraine, but not on behalf oh, of Austria. Yeah, just I as remember a, seeing that. I didn't As an independent it. person, but like, yeah. I mean, I want to get back ridiculous. to the article real quick because we're already 
going real real hard on just the first uh, paragraph. But I want to see if you guys <laughs> had anything to say about baby bonuses before I continue because that was also in that like that first paragraph. It's a bang. Not going to happen. They never reward anything. They, that, that's not the ethos of the United States. You don't get rewarded. You only get punished. But okay, so like I will say, maybe in a small fucking freedom community, you actually could do <laughs> a little bit of what do you call it, like um, paying maternal labor, like which you would fucking do, like you should fucking do in a functional society. You should pay mothers for their labor because like it fucking takes labor to raise children. If you're going to make mothers do it, well then pay them for it. If you want to have a functional society, you want to encourage people to do it. They're like again stumbling onto fucking socialism because what else can you do? Yeah, but it's like it, but it's like the stimulus check form of things, right? Where it's a limited time, one time payout, and it doesn't sustain right. anything. If the kid is poor, the worst in Freedom City, version, then like... fucking die, fucking die. Once you're, you know what I mean? Yeah. Once you're poor in Freedom City, yeah. Once you're poor in Freedom City, Jesus, <laughs> that is that. That's a there's a rhythm to that one. Um, Did we lose a bot? What happened? No, Levi jumped we... in. Oh, okay. Oh, what up, what up, Levi? Hi, diddly ho, neighborinos. <laughs> We're just talking about freedom cities and and um, the inevitable uh, uh, death of socialism that their uh, success will cause. Can't wait. I mean, didn't socialism die a long time ago in this country? Are they just like uh, playing with the corpse now? What's going on? It's always dying. It's always dying, but always right. on the rise again. Right. Yeah. All right, I'll continue with this uh, Freedom City article. So uh, it says, quote, past generations of Americans pursued big dreams Oh, about the baby bonuses. It's it's all his team says part of a larger nationwide beautification campaign meant to inspire forward-looking visions of America's future. He says, "Quote: Past generations of America's Americans pursued big dreams and daring projects that once seemed absolutely impossible. They pushed across an unsettled continent and built new cities in the wild frontier. They transformed American life with the interstate highway system. Magnificent it was, and they launched a vast network of satellites into orbit all around the Earth." Trump said in his video. Now, definitely no connection to, like, the fact that, like, these are paid for with taxpayer dollars or, like, that a lot of this was, like, government-run. And it's, like, when the country had, like, I don't know, maybe frontier times are a bad uh, example of that. But, like, I guess it's still, like, an infrastructure project, just a horrific and genocidal one. But, like, yeah, he's just, like, again, stumbling onto planned economies and, like, government-run infrastructure works. But, like, they still can't, af- they still can't avoid falling into fascism with it right like what we just said is like inherently reactionary right you need to look back the make america great again you need to look back to the colonial project right so like as forward-looking as they want this to be framed right like it's still inherently reactionary in so many ways from its conception right which is why america as a project is just inherently fucking bad right Mm -hmm. i mean it's it's it is anathema to capitalism to have like forward-thinking as far as building communities, because the whole point right now is to uh, smash and grab, right? It is just to build up immediately, uh, you know, reap resources from, be that labor or natural resources, and then uh, abandon completely. And that's all these will be. That's all these will be. There's no yeah. question. Oh, he's got great plans. I want to, his, his quote continues. He says, quote, but today our country has lost its boldness. Under my leadership, we will get it back in a very big way. It's just like I love that. It's like perfect Trump speak. If you look at if you look at just three years ago, what we were doing was unthinkable. How good it was, how great it was for our country. Our objective will be a quantum leap in the American standard of living. Trump said. Trump campaign advisors acknowledge the new set of plans are out of the ordinary, but they note he's made other eye-popping proposals before, like purchasing Greenland from Denmark. They offered analogies to Abraham Lincoln's campaign for the Transcontinental Railroad, Teddy Roosevelt's vision for a national park service, and Dwight D. Eisenhower's inter- interstate highway system. 
A former celebrity real estate developer and TV personality, Trump has a long history of outlining audacious new initiatives that are heavy on imagery and light on details. The latest offerings come with a few with few explanations for how they will be executed. Trump says he would host a contest for the public to design and then build freedom cities on a small portion of federal land to reopen the frontier, reignite American imagination, and give hundreds and give hundreds of thousands of young people and other people, all hardworking families, a new shot at home ownership and, and in fact the American dream. Trump's it's, this still, is, it's all revanchism. Like yeah. yeah. I don't know if this has already been said, but I mean the easiest way to reopen the frontier is just to go right back to direct imperialism. So why doesn't he just, if they're going back already, why don't they just talk about recolonizing Africa? It'd just be so much easier. You know, just skip the steps. Oh, but that's so gauche. <laughs> I thought you'd just say that's already uh, already happening, but well, gauche I mean, is good yeah. too. Although, I guess we should expect gauche from Donald Trump. Yeah, No, I mean, we've only shifted like public focus or public attention from AFRICOM to pivot to Asia, but AFRICOM is still pretty much going on as far as I know. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, is Antarctica melted enough to be recolonized? I mean, what's going on down there? <laughs> Give it like five more minutes. <laughs> yeah, right. Oh, God. No, but that's uh, the other point I wanted to make is that like, you know, while a place like China is looking at building like sponge cities, right, to deal with like climate change and impending um, geographical changes in a given region and how to deal with that, we're talking about creating hives of industry, right, by like destroying our fucking national parks and shit like that, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. engine city it's um, one of these kind of inst- I mean I don't know this article or where it's going or where Trump is going with this I don't think he's going anywhere uh, but it's one of those instances where it sounds like he's accidentally hitting on an actual pivotal aspect of American history in that the closing of the frontier really was a national change yeah. so instead of once the frontier was closed that's when America started dabbling in imperialism directly I mean there was already South America Central America but the closing of the frontier on the literal Continental 48 was the opening of imperialism. I mean, this is like William Appleman Williams' The Tragedy of American History. That's his main thesis, and it, it still relatively holds up. It's just where he takes it is absolutely vile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Isn't there sort of a parallel you can draw between that and... Um, not exactly a parallel, but I imagine there's sort of a same mechanism of changing the public consciousness between that and when... Uh, Britain basically lost all of its colonies and it manifested itself in like sort of the abusive dad used to be in the British army and stuff like that. Um, I'd imagine there's some parallels you can draw there. I'll uh, continue here. So Trump's calls for investments in vertical takeoff and landing vehicles, which he says could transform transportation and connect rural and urban America. It's part of a quote, major initiative focused on lowering the cost of new of a new car and creating new transportation methods. It comes as companies like Boeing and Honda are currently spending billions to develop and test electric ver- electric vertical takeoff and landing vehicles that operate like giant drones for humans. Okay, so oh, they man. are sort of like helicopters, but I guess like a little more slimmed down. Flying cars, my man. The dream is finally coming to life. Always 20 <laughs> years out. I know, right? I mean, I guess like the drone, that still it kind of makes it a little more realistic in my mind. Like maybe they could actually have something that works like a drone and is powerful enough to carry like a person. I could sort of see it happening, but it's just like, of course, like any, like any other technology, it's always going to be used for like the worst reason. It's like, yeah, you'll get the ones that'll be used as like a ambulance and that'll be great, but it'll cost 20,000 fucking dollars. And then it will mostly be used to like, I don't know, carry away prisoners, like really yeah. just fuck up people, like move, remove homeless people, like the physical removal people. Um, I don't know if people are aware of them, but like, these are like, um, 
the Hans Hermann Hoppe stands and like they 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 love Pinochet and they've always been big helicopter mean people. It'll be drone. Gonna, it'll be drone rides instead of yeah, helicopter they're gonna love rides. it. Yeah. I just want to say, like, about the the whole, like, drone infrastructure and stuff like that. Like, if this could be realistically implemented in a city, right, um, it would have already. Because I guarantee you it's cheaper to just demolish a poor neighborhood, put in the drone, um, you know, the, the drone port, if you will, and then build another one in another poor neighborhood, right? It's like, it's just what we did with, um, with the interstates. I, like... You, you cannot expect this to happen. You, it, it would have already if they could make money off it. Nick, what you got? Yeah, I mean, what, what these are going to be are fucking company towns, right? And it just made me, yeah. with the drones thing, that made me think of it, right? Because, like, somewhere like, Am- <laughs> think Amazon. Amazon is investing heavily in, like, drone delivery technology and things like that, right? So this is going to be an Amazon fucking warehouse town on the frontier, right? And people are going to live in their small little cubes. And maybe, hey, maybe it's even, like, built vertically instead of horizontally, even more so than usual, right? And, you know, at the base, you're going to have a fucking warehouse, which distributes everything out. And the drones, all the transportation, all the work is going to be brought to you by Amazon, who's going to own the fucking land anyway, right? Because that's the way this is all heading. So for a dollar, they're going to buy it for a dollar <laughs> for innovation. Come on. Mm-hmm. I mean, it'll be like those old Walmart deals, but they'll just go into the small town and the town will build it for them because they need those jobs. I mean. You guys hate mm-hmm. jobs, I assume. So <laughs> you wouldn't understand. I, I mean, I actually do hate jobs. Like, I do hate jobs yeah. too. Yes. God, what did I get myself into? Well, it's just like I saw uh, when I was doing outreach yesterday. I saw somebody with like a basically a stand your ground sign that said, "We don't call nine one one." And I was like, "Hell yeah, me neither." Nice. <laughs> well, um, I'll actually wrap this up because it's not much longer. So he says, uh, "Just as the United States led the automotive revolution in the last century, I want to ensure that America, not China." Again, got to be adversarial about it. Can't just like mm-hmm. actually want to make America great again. It has to like make sure that China's not great. Uh, but anyway, this, this is still Trump quoting, I should have said. I want to ensure that America, not China, leads this revolution in air mobility, Trump said in the video. As for the quote, baby bonuses to encourage the next baby boom and tackle America's slowing birth rate, Trump appears to be, quote, knowingly, or sorry, Trump appears to be knowingly or not borrowing a page from others like Senator Cory Booker. During the 2020 campaign, the New Jersey Democrat proposed baby bonds, which would set aside funds and a savings account for every child in America. Trump's advisors concede that the set of proposals put out on Friday are broad brushstrokes, but they also insist that they aren't moonshot either. I mean, I would kind of mm. debate that, but... Uh, yeah. I just want well, fucking I'm... trains. God damn it. <laughs> yeah. Trains and healthcare, please. That's all I need. Well, Can I want to go see... <laughs> Sorry. So what does the world look like if uh, America's great again and China's great again? I mean, is there... Can we dare to dream? You can't, you can't have that because if the world is great, that means America is great. And that means China cannot be great because they're obviously bad. Like, I mean, just look at, look at President Z. He just looks bad, right? Like, he just looks like a bad, evil guy. Like, as opposed yeah, to right. Biden, who looks totally normal and not creepy. Or Trump, who looks very normal also, like, perfectly Dude, My favorite joke, my favorite, I don't really care about, like, the Trump looks like this or Trump is like this or he's yellow or orange or whatever joke. No, my I just, only... I was kind of just being so ironic because I really just want to hug Xi Jinping, like real bad. No, I agree. I also would like to do that. But I was just going to say that my favorite, like, Trump looks weird joke is that he looks like he's the front half of a centaur that's missing its back half. That's the way he stands. Mm-hmm. And it's so good. That is really good. I saw somebody say he's that too the other far, day. It was like, so perfect. Out. He's like leaning too far out. He does. Yeah. He yeah. leans. It's ridiculous. 
Um, let's see where did I leave off. Um, sorry. So Trump's quantum leap proposals are part of a series of policy videos he has rolled out since launching his campaign for president. Other videos have focused on issues like the border security, and um, no, you know what? I did. I, I skipped the whole paragraph. Sorry, I'm going to go back. I'm going to be doing some snippies after all. <laughs> While in the White House, Trump proposed some similar ideas, like his executive order on promoting beautiful federal civic architecture. What is that? It's PBFCA. No, I thought it would be like some kind of anagram or something. They called for making classical architecture the standard for all federal buildings. Well, that's not fascist at all. <laughs> it was panned by critics who said it discouraged modern ideas and design. It was ultimately revoked by President Joe Biden. Trump also called for a, quote, Garden of American Heroes in an executive order that would feature statues of major figures from American politics, art, science, and sports, ranging from Harriet Tubman to Babe Ruth. Biden also revoked that order. Oh, I guarantee you there were so many articles in, like, right-wing rage bait mm -hmm. saying, like, Biden revoked the Harriet Tubman thing, and, like, the Democrats are, of course, the party of racism and slavery, so. There are definitely plans for statues for, like, Robert E. Lee, Jefferson mm -hmm. Davis, all, yeah. all those guys as well. And then one Harriet Tubman thrown in there just yeah. to be like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, in so the they basement. could call Joe Biden racist. Right. I know this is one of those things that probably... <laughs> I mean, it got memory hold for a good reason, but I think they discovered they started saying that like Garden of Heroes after the uh, they were talking about not having Harriet Tubman on the twenty or the ten or whatever she was meant to be uh, on. Okay. She was like, "Oh well, we really honor all of America's heroes, not just mm -hmm. one." All heroes matter, and we are mm. all heroes. I want to point out too that uh, quantum means the smallest discrete unit you can possibly have. So when they keep <laughs> calling it a quantum leap. <laughs> Yeah, Trump's quote, quantum, the quantum leap proposals. forward. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> They're part of a series of policy videos he's rolled out since launching his campaign for president. Other videos have focused on issues like border security and education. Earlier this week, Trump introduced his 2024 trade policy that would, quote, tax China to build up America. Tax China? Dude, it's just fucking laughable, dude. China? They're going to yeah. tax a sovereign country? Hmm. I mean, that just like will, Mexico's like, going to build the wall, right? Like, <laughs> Jesus. Yeah. Is any of this stuff really sticking in the same way that the we're going to build a wall and Mexico is going to pay for it, though? I mean, it doesn't seem to be hitting the same ether it did four years ago. I mean, this just came out, right? Yeah, it might like, be too far out still. We might be like not close enough to the actual election. I don't know. It, yeah, it hasn't had time to stick to the wall yet. I don't know. That, that day he came down the escalator, he had all of his lines already prepared, and they were all over the news. I feel like he just doesn't have his fire anymore. He's, he's hurling around, throwing everything, and nothing's really sticking yet. He's not going to need much to beat Brandon, though. No, he's really not. All he has to do is say, yeah. we're going to make things better as everything else gets worse around him. And then Joe Biden just has to say, uh, no, we're not. And then he'll lose. Yeah. I mean, he's literally going to do the same thing. Like, what do you got to lose? Yeah. Yeah. He, uh, but I mean, to you guys didn't hear this is, this is going to be the most important election of your life. Well, I mean, of oh, course, definitely. But. It's already started. Um, it's, it's already started. Just um, let me wrap up that sentence. So he says, uh, after saying to tax China to build up America, um, he says he will create a system that, quote, rewards domestic production and taxes foreign companies and those who export American jobs. So, I mean, th that the horses have already left the barn. Like, the jobs are already gone. Like, I, every president has promised to bring back manufacturing. They cannot do it. Every president since Reagan has exported manufacturing. It's like, that's not happening. So... Like materially, it's just not possible. Like it is not a thing that can happen because no one's going to invest in American manufacturing. They're going yeah. to go somewhere else where it's cheaper, um, unless they start somehow making it much cheaper in America. And unless they really to do, I mean, unless they really go gun ho on like the miners 
I mean like M I N O R S, not like the coal miners, but like the young children. And uh, I guess like whatever else we're using for slave labor, whether it's prisoners or uh, undocumented people, like, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, unless they start going really mask off with that, I don't know. I guess I'm just like really spelling out the U.S.'s fascist turn uh, mm -hmm. every time we get on this mic. I don't know. I mean, capital won't let them. Capital won't let them rebuild that kind of infrastructure because we, living at the imperial core, have at least some modicum of labor protection. That's it. Yeah, the idea of actually making labor cheaper here just would cost so much for the government to make that so, other than the, the sort of mass grip off, that it just doesn't seem like it's going to happen. Yeah. Well, Meanwhile, they can continue destroying the environment while they produce everything uh, where it's not supposed to be made. Uh, by people that they can bully into making it, right? And then transport it over here. I, um, the only other thing I have for tonight was that, um, what is it? What was the title of it? U.S. Hegemony. The, uh, oh, yeah. Political Hegemony. The, um, sorry. U.S. Hegemony and its perils. Yeah. Because that is the good shit. I mean, I will read this entire thing if you guys want, but um, I, <laughs> I want to see if you guys had anything else you wanted to talk about before I get into it. But I could probably spend the rest of our hour tonight just reading this thing and, whatever commentary we have on it, but do you have something, Nick? No, no. I mean, oh, okay. I just think it'll be good to read this. I mean, I read this a couple nights ago and I was just like, this is exactly how I feel about <laughs> the U S empire. And it's just, I think Ward said it in the, uh, in the discord, but he was just like, yeah, I mean, that's what material analysis does to a motherfucker. Right. And <laughs> yeah. this just so happens to come from the communist party of China. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, didn't so, Chavez didn't Chavez give a speech that was very similar, like right before George Bush had spoken, and he said something like, um, "I can still smell the sulfur from the American Empire." <laughs> Dude, I yeah. I will pull up that Chavez speech sometimes, and it's just a clip of him just railing. And I mean, I wish I could do it in Spanish, but it's just like, "Goddamn Yankee, go home! Goddamn <laughs> so Yankees, it's so fucking good." <laughs> My favorite Chavez clip is when he's at the airport and that Fox News. Uh, reporter comes up to him and is like, "Oh, he's Fox like, News. From... Yeah, it's like, oh, everybody hates you. You're very stupid." Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, all right. <clears throat> Let me just get into some of this, and then I'll see how much I can get through. I mean, we started at uh, eight forty-one. We'll get another half an hour or so. So we'll see how much we can get through. Maybe we'll just, run just take it section by section. Coming. Yeah, I mean, yeah, we'll just we'll get through. It. We'll just we're playing it by ear. It's a live show. Fuck it. <laughs> Fuck it. I'll... I'll probably give it, hand it off to you guys if I get bored of reading. Anyway, so they're talking, they divide up into sections. And I will say, just to start, start off, you should listen, should listen to the Geopolitical Economy Report, uh, Ben Norton's new show. I guess he's not doing Multipolarista anymore. And he broke down this same exact report. And he did it like the professional way, which is to take the important sections and then actually back them up with like historical examples and some research and some notes and everything. Whereas we're just going to kind of read it and talk shit on it because that's what we do here. But yeah, go listen to Ben Norton. He's got like much better takes. But anyway, so the introduction, they say, since becoming the world's most powerful country after the two world, sorry, the world's most powerful country after the two world wars and the Cold War, the United States has acted more boldly to interfere in the internal affairs of other countries, pursue, maintain, and abuse hegemony, advance subversion and infiltration, and willfully wage wars, bringing harm to the international community. The United States has developed a hegemonic playbook to stage, quote, color revolutions, instigate regional disputes, and even directly launch wars under the guise of promoting democracy freedom, and human rights. Clinging to the Cold War mentality, the United States has ramped up block politics and stoked conflict and confrontation. It has overstretched the concept of national security, 
abused export controls, and forced unilateral sanctions upon others. It has taken a selective approach to international law and rules, utilizing or discarding them as it sees fit, and has sought to impose rules that serve its own interests in the name of upholding a, quote, rules-based international order. I love that. Mm-hmm. This report, by presenting the relevant facts, seeks to expose the U.S. abuse of hegemony in the political, military, economic, financial, technological, and cultural fields, and to draw greater international attention to the perils of the U.S. practices to world peace and stability and the well-being of all peoples. Yeah. I mean, there you Just fucking like, have it, right? It's so, so good. Based. So fucking based. I love this line, the U.S. abuse of hegemony. Is there a good use of hegemony? Well, China's I mean, been making a bunch of free medical <laughs> clinics in Africa. Is, is that hegemony? Are they really trying to control that area, though? Well, I suppose you're right. I suppose I was thinking hegemony is just power as it is, not power being used. So, yeah. It's sort of like the, the benevolent king or the benevolent imperialism. Like, I guess you could theoretically say that, but it seems kind no, of No, you're right. Statement retracted. <clears throat> um, all right. So, next section, political hegemony, throwing its weight around. The United States has long been attempting to mold other countries and the world and the world order with its own values and political system in the name of promoting democracy and human rights. Instances of U.S. interference in other countries' internal affairs abound. In the name of, quote, promoting democracy, the United States practiced a, quote, neo-Monroe doctrine in Latin America, instigated, quote, color revolutions in Eurasia, and orchestrated, quote, the Arab Spring in West Asia and North Africa, bringing chaos and disaster to many countries. In 1823, the United States announced the Monroe Doctrine, while touting, quote, an America for the Americans, what it truly wanted was, quote, an America for the United States. Since then, the policies of successive, successive U.S. governments toward Latin America and the Caribbean region have been riddled with political interference, military intervention, and regime subversion. From its 61-year hostility toward and blockade of Cuba to its overflow, sorry, overthrow of the Allende regime of Chile, U.S. policy on this, on this region has been built on the maxim, those who submit will prosper. Those who resist shall perish. Yeah, I mean, dead on. Mm-hmm. The year 2003 marked the beginning of a succession of color revolutions, the Rose Revolution in Georgia, the Orange Revolution in Ukraine, and the Tulip Revolution in Kyrgyzstan. The U.S. Department of State openly admitted playing a central role in these regime changes. The United States also interfered in the internal affairs of the Philippines, ousting President Ferdinand Marcos Sr. in 1986 and President Joseph Estrada in 2001 through the so-called People Power Revolutions. In January 2023, former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo released his new book, Never Give an Inch, Fighting for the America I Love. He revealed in it that the United States had, had plotted to intervene in Venezuela. The plan was to force the Maduro government to reach an agreement with the opposition, deprive Venezuela of its ability to sell oil and gold for foreign exchange, exert high pressure on its economy, and influence the 2018 presidential election. The U.S. exercises double standards on international rules. Placing its self-interest first, the United States has walked away from, interna- from international treaties and organizations and put its domestic law above international law. In April 2017, the Trump administration announced that it would cut off all U.S. funding to the United Nations Population Fund, UN- UNFPA, with the excuse that the organization, quotes, supports or participates in the management of a program of coercive abortion or involuntary sterilization. I wonder if that's the case, though, because it's like that sounds like something like a U.N. organization would do, but like to, I don't know people in the global south but like right. it doesn't sound like something the trump administration would really care about unless they like got a bunch of people riled up about like abortion which is what they do right i don't know and that was uh what's her name nikki haley was the liaison to the un so she might have pulled something together for that being the governor of south carolina 
and uh, also presidential aspirant by no coincidence. Oh, God. I'm not familiar with the Kaylee. Uh, former governor and former representative to the UN. That's what she's using to launch her p- current presidential run. Wasn't she running on some sort of identity politics thing where she was saying she was like an Indian woman or something like uh, that? She's not saying that anymore. Okay. She's backed away from that. <laughs> no, I, I honestly don't know. But it, it is one of those things where it's like all of these Indian guys or foreign guys running that year were like um, Bobby Jindal. You know, they had like their American name that they were running with, like Nikki. Like, I, I don't believe her real name is Nikki. You know, it's very South Carolinian. Mm-hmm. Um, but it continues, the United States quit UNESCO twice in 1984 and 2017. In 2017, it announced leaving the Paris Agreement on Climate Change. In 2018, it announced its exit from the UN Human Rights Council, citing the organization's, quote, bias against Israel and failure, and, sorry, failure protect, to protect human rights effectively in 2019. The United States announced its withdrawal from the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty to seek unfettered development of advanced weapons, which is, like, fucking terrifying. Yeah. Yeah, and every and then, article you see about, like, Russia lately, you know, um, they didn't even withdraw from it, but they kind of suspended the new sp- their participation in the New Spark Treaty, right? But everything's, oh, Russia bad, right? But, like, U.S. did this a couple of years, 2019, four years ago yeah. at this point, right? We also have a history of that. Look at the SALT II talks, right, with Gorbachev and Reagan. Gorbachev came to the table, like, 100% ready to negotiate, and... Reagan was like, no, you will accept 100% of it or we are walking. And Gorbachev was like, uh, no. And then yeah. all of the newspapers were just like, oh, look how Gorbachev's not working for peace. Russian aggression or mm-hmm. Soviet aggression. Nick, you probably remember the Michael Prenti quote about that exact situation. Because I think you said it on like one of our recent episodes together, like how they always paint these socialists as unreasonable, but then also like um, weak. It's like if they, if they, socialists cave they're weak, and if they don't cave, then they're hardliners who are just like, you know, they're just, uh, what do you call it, stubborn. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Unreasonable. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you paraphrased it better than I, you know, could remember it right now exactly, so. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, someone will email us with the fucking Michael Prenti quote, and I mean, I'll make it into a meme and post just it. Just chill. I can get black <laughs> shirts and reds off my shelf if you need me to. So. No, yeah, no, I'm literally looking at it <laughs> no, right I'm just now. I'm, I'm talking to the listeners. Don't don't send out. Oh, yeah. we, we, we got it. <laughs> Um, and then the last line of that one is in 2020, it announced pulling out of the Treaty on Open Skies. So, yeah, the U.S. is just pulling out of nuclear treaties left and right. But then, of course, yeah. accusing Russia of doing that. The United States has also been a stumbling block to biological arms control by opposing negotiations on a verification protocol for the Biological Weapons Convention, the BWC, and impeding international verification of countries' activities relating to biological weapons. As the only country in possession of a chemical weapons stockpile, the United States has repeatedly delayed the destruction of chemical weapons and remained reluctant in fulfilling its obligations. It has become the biggest obstacle to realizing a, quote, world free of chemical weapons. The United States is piecing together small blocks through its alliance system. It has been forcing an Indo-Pacific strategy on the Asia-Pacific region, assembling exclusive uh, clubs like the Five Eyes, the Quad, and the AUKUS, and forcing regional countries to take sides. Such practices are essentially meant to create division in the region, stoke confrontation, and undermine peace. And also just fucking spy on everybody. So it's like fucking ridiculous. Like when I found out about the five eyes and then the nine eyes and then the 11 eyes, it's like, it just goes like, you're always being spied on. If you think like the NSA is the only thing spying on you, like I have some terrible news for you. Like there's no avoiding any of this shit. Like, which you got, Nick? No, um, it just makes me think there's this, uh, 
historian, uh, Alfred McCoy, um, I think he might come from the Frankfurt school. So, I mean, you can't take everything he says ideologically, you know, on its face, or you really can't do that with anybody. But in any case, he's got this book called, um, in the shadow of the American century. I read a couple of years back at this point. Was this one the of politics the terms... of her- heroin guy? Sorry. Yes, exactly. Yeah, okay. Um, and he came up with this term for it called like the panopticon, right? And the, the, the panopticon, multiple eyes, right? So it just implies that it's been a long-term strategy for this to develop the surveillance state. And it actually goes back to, you know, we were talking about um, overseas imperial ventures abroad. I mean, um, this may not be the first instance, but it's one of the most notable. But when we colonized the Philippines um, following the Spanish-American War, I mean, you could see the genesis of this. Like you had kind of like networks of phone lines that would go around communication lines that would go around kind of like these guerrilla areas and things like that. You'd have police forces on the ground that were reporting on dissidents within certain communities and things like that. So it's just interesting to, you know, they, they're saying, they're basically saying this term, right? Like on its face, the five eyes. And it is like, like you're saying, like the Imperial surveillance state, a worldwide surveillance imperial project right and it's just it's it's not new i guess is the point that i'm making it's always they've always realized the importance of surveillance to achieving their ends yeah it's to sort of take it a little bit less concrete but the notion of the panopticon of the mind that you're supposed to always feel like you're being watched even when you're not being watched that you behave in a way so that you know you're you're doing the right thing Uh, And I think in the United States, one of the examples that's always given is the notion of taxation. Like people always reply to their taxation every year correctly, even though there's almost no way for the IRS to actually enforce their own rules. And that's just so much more powerful if you can get that panopticon of the mind, because then people feel like they have, they're, they're always being watched. And I think to build on what Nick was saying, we're getting to this ideological, technological point where that might actually be possible to always be watched. So it goes from the mind to actually the body, uh, which is just absolutely terrifying. Hmm. Y'all yeah, see I mean, that tweet that was going around? Your... Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Nick. Oh, sorry. Just, y'all see that tweet that was going around that somebody was like, oh, I just recently rewatched the Charlie's Angels movie from 2000, and the plot was they were trying to stop all our cell, phone, cell phones from knowing our location all the time? <laughs> no. That was a big plot point. That was also in um, The Dark Knight. Yeah. Yeah, that he shut it down at the end because, you know, billionaires are good. Yeah, right. Yeah, don't get that started on Batman. <laughs> <laughs> no, but capitalism is building your Orwellian future. So, no, yeah, I mean, socialism. That's, <laughs> that's what Orwell said as well. It was just um, retracted from the version that he published because the British press said it wasn't appropriate. Mm. That's some 1984 shit. <laughs> <sighs> um, I mean, my favorite part about the fucking Five Eyes and Nine Eyes and Eleven Eyes and all of them is that they trade the info. Like, for people who are just unaware, I'm sure we've brought it up on the show before, but just in case, like, if it's illegal for you to spy on your citizens here in the U.S., then what you do is you form an alliance with Britain, and Britain can spy on U.S. citizens because they don't have to obey U.S. law. They also, they just don't give a shit. They'll just say it's a matter of national security, and then they just give that data to the U.S. because they formed an alliance. So it's just a matter of skirting that law, which is like, it's one more step. It's like connecting to your VPN on your phone. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah. It's the anti-pirate no bay. Yeah. You're, you're telling me that the United States would use foreign countries as a means to circumvent their own laws? <laughs> no uh, way. Give me 10 examples. Speak, speaking of which, the U.S. arbitrarily passes judgment on democracy on other, in other countries 
and fabricates a false narrative of, quote, democracy versus authoritarianism to incite estrangement, division, rivalry, and confrontation. In December 2021, the United States hosted the first, quote, Summit for Democracy, which drew criticism and opposition from many countries for making a mockery of the spirit of democracy and dividing the world. In March 2023, the United States will host another, quote, Summit for Democracy, which remains unwelcome and will again find no support. And then we're on to the military hegemony section. What do you got, Nick? Just real quick, I mean, from that first section, it seems like, I don't want to even use the word confrontational, but China is just being more direct here. I mean, I, I think it's probably safe to say in the past that they've been a little bit more cautious and probably rightfully so with calling out U.S. hypocrisy, at least in a document like this. Like, this is a Ministry of Foreign Affairs publication, right? Um, and I think that's probably changed at various points in history, depending upon, you know, the conditions that the CPC was dealing with at the time, right? But, I mean, th- this is just, I guess it's a little bit more forward than um, something that I guess I'd be used to seeing out of, out of China. Um, and it just seems like they're getting to the point where they've been pushed a little bit too much and they've got enough to kind of back this up, you know? Um, and they've waited long enough and now they're ready to be like, no, fuck you, you know? Yeah. That's the best part about this, right? It's like at every stage of this, like the U S is stoking aggression. They're always like poking the bear or whatever, whatever the metaphor is like the dragon, I guess with China. They're like doing shit, like sending Nancy Pelosi over to Taiwan, or they're like flying planes into the airspace and saying like, "Oh, look how aggressive China is being when we fly planes right over the airspace." It's like, what the fuck? Like, I'm <laughs> um, just like all the shit the U.S. is constantly doing, and then China is just like always saying, "Oh, you should probably not do that. Like, you should probably just stop testing us. Like, just stop dicking around because you're going to mm-hmm. fuck around and find out." And then still acts patiently every time. At every turn, mm-hmm. China just continues to act patiently and with like good judgment, like. Like the actual badass in like a fight with someone who is just acting drunk or something like, mm-hmm. and uh, and especially because they have the facts on their side, it's just really satisfying when they can just do this. Where they just they come like with what Ben Shapiro wishes he was with like actual materials. Like they just actually have the facts on their side, and it's beautiful to see. And when they just lay it out this way, it's I just love it. But uh, I, Nat, you had something that we'll go with Nick if you could. Oh, I was just gonna say that. You know, uh, Nick, you had mentioned that it was a little bit remarkable how direct China was being with this, or the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. I don't want to paint with too broad a brush, but China has no—and and you're right, it is remarkable, but China has no reason uh, to be anything but direct at this point, particularly when it comes to messaging and rhetoric, as as they'll get to later in their statement. They're facing um, the the hegemon with the most— propaganda power the most media and the most soft power if you will right like they have to use the sharpest knife they can to cut through all the fluff that is produced by american propaganda i i applaud them for this i applaud them for not necessarily taking the more diplomatic route and more um circumspect route they should no. they should be this direct no, and like I don't want to seem like I don't agree. I'm a thousand percent mm-hmm. in support of this approach. And I think the other part of it is is like they've got, you know, material analysis on their side, facts on their side. And related to this is they've got the mass of the population of the world on their side. You know, like whether mm-hmm. you agree with it or not, most of the global south from popular polls conducted by Western institutions will show that Folks in the global south prefer China as a partner to the U.S., and I can't fucking imagine why that would be the case, right? But, like, mm-hmm. they're looking at this whole thing. They're saying we're being poked, and you know what? We, we, we're integrated with 
I mean, China is the world's number one trading partner. I love looking at those maps that show from like <laughs> where what it looked like in like the 80s um, or in the 90s to now in a comparison. And it shows like kind of which country, um, the U.S. versus China, is that particular country's largest trading partner, right? So you can see that shift. And I think this just corresponds to a global tide in opinion and economic ties um, in China's favor. Um, that they feel that now's the time for a document like this to come out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think building on what Mike was saying in terms of China's ability to really, or PRC's really ability to see the winds of change going. I mean, it, it would be interesting to compare this kind of document to something that was put out in the late 90s when they were sort of regaining Hong Kong. And their language of democracy was, um, to paraphrase, that they were looking to become more democratic like their British former colonizers and it, it speaks to a moment of strength the way that they're speaking now because they're utilizing their soft power that they've developed since that period they don't have any need to kowtow to western powers i mean they're just in such a position of strength uh and then again to build on what mike was saying i mean their their patience their uh ability to produce statecraft i mean it, it's just i would say it's unparalleled but it, it's paralleled by every state that the United States has been picking on. I mean, Iran had their top general murdered, and their response was basically to say, we should negotiate about this. Like, yeah. it, it's truly insane. And it, it's just such a stark difference compared to how these countries are treated and how they respond to this hard power. Mm -hmm. It is really cool to see just, like, the U.S. playbook just not working anymore. It's like because the U.S. has one fucking playbook it's like when enough countries see it happen it's like oh well we can kind of predict this now it's like you guys have a big, big fucking military no well wow you guys were gonna use your military who could have seen that coming like right like you guys were gonna like uh like what influence some groups over here use some far-right reactionaries and like act like our government is illegitimate and like uh like create some protests about free market citizenship it's like nobody wants that shit like even your people don't want free markets anymore they're sick of it mm -hmm. just real quick um, because I think we're kind of dancing around this point a little bit, but just for some of the, I don't know how else to say it, all the, some of the goofs out here that, you know, want to bitch about fucking multi, uh, multipolarity and shit like that. None of us see multipolarity as the fucking end all be all, but what is the logical next step in this global development right now? Right? Like we're not going to go from fucking U.S. hegemony to classless stateless society or whatever it may be or it has to, it's necessarily going to break down into some kind of multipolar world at this point. Nobody sees that as the end-all be-all, but this is a position of strength to fight the U.S., and it is a better development from what we have now. And I just think that we're speaking to that a little bit um, uh, with how these global dynamics are playing out, with China kind of at the epicenter of it, I believe. Counterpoint, what about 600 simultaneous communist revolutions tomorrow? Yeah. <laughs> Hell okay, yeah, Trotsky. Trotsky. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> My guy. <laughs> All right, let me continue with this uh, thing. So the next session, like I said, military hegemony, wanton use of force. The history of the United States is characterized by violence and expansion. Since it gained independence in 1776, the United States has constantly sought expansion by force. It slaughtered Indians, invaded Canada, waged a war against Mexico, instigated the American-Spanish War, and annexed Hawaii. Yeah, annexed Hawaii. After World War II, its wars, the wars either provoked or launched by the United States included the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Kosovo War, the war in Afghanistan, the Iraq War, the Libyan War, and the Syrian War. 
abusing its military hegemony to pave the way for expansionist objectives. Sorry, expansionist objectives. In recent years, the U.S. average annual military budget has exceeded 700 billion U.S. dollars, accounting for 40% of the world's total, more than 15 countries behind it combined. The United States has about 800 overseas military bases, with 173,000 troops deployed in 159 countries. According to the book America Invades, How We've Invaded or Been Militarily Militarily Involved with Almost Every Country on Earth, the United States has fought or been, in mil- or been militarily involved with almost all of the 190-odd countries recognized by the United Nations, with only three excep- exceptions. The three countries were, quote, spared because the United States did not find them on the map. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy, dude. <laughs> I find this, this quick history of the United States fascinating. Right? Why did they choose to involve invading Canada but not mention slavery? Ah, damn. I think, I think they might later. Because we're talking about military hegemony. <laughs> I mean, what's more military hegemony than going down into the South and using the military to take slaves back to their owners? Fair point. It's just, why is invading Canada on there? That's not <laughs> something that we talk about. <laughs> it really is funny to see how other countries view the U.S. because, like, yeah, that shit never comes up here. The Canada brings it up. <laughs> <laughs> they don't want the uh, lash. <laughs> lash. <laughs> what did we US tell person? you? What did we tell you? So, like, the Philippines aren't on there? Like, it's, I don't know. That list, I mean, list really puzzles too, me. The list could get too long, I think. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's. I fair. guess they do have to be selective for time's sake, but yeah, I guess the selections are interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, but they it's go just on. Like a... Sorry. No, what is it? <laughs> no, just like, it's just, like you said, it's just like, it's really interesting to see how these organizations really see the United States. Like, yeah. if if each one of us were to come up with the five, what is this, five or six, uh, worst atrocities of American imperialism. I, th- I think we would come up with something different. I mean, I'm not criticizing it. I just think it's. Sorry, that's the mm-hmm. historian in me, just fascinated well, by this view. What do you want to bet that like someone in China was like, "Oh, Canadians, they're white. That'll be sympathetic to the American audience. They'll ah, care about those guys." Like <laughs> that's a damn fine point. They're practically French. Yeah, I mean, it just seems to me real quickly that it's kind of like ref- they took like four or five, uh, three or four. Um, different instances from like a given historical epoch we'll call it right like from the early to the initial like imperialist expansion to kind of the post-world war ii to the 90s to the 2000s and just kind of did a quick hit list along those kind of generations mm-hmm. yeah um oh where to leave okay so as former u.s president jimmy carter put it the united states is undoubtedly the most warlike nation in the history of the world Jimmy Carter said that? Based Jimmy Carter. <laughs> According to a Tufts University report, quote, introducing the military intervention project, a new data set on U.S. military interventions, 1776 to 2019. I can't believe that fit in one volume. The United States <laughs> undertook nearly 400 military interventions globally between those years, 34% of which were in Latin America and the Caribbean, 23% in East Asia and the Pacific, 14% in the Middle East and North Africa, and 13% in Europe. Currently, its military intervention in the Middle East and North Africa and Sub-Saharan Africa is on the rise. I better get to work on my podcast, 400 military interventions. <laughs> Levi, you better get right. And... This is what I, I mean, mean man. come we on. We never run out of stuff. Like... How are these percentages weighted, though? This can't be by bodies. Maybe. <laughs> Alex Lowe, a South China Morning Post communist. Uh, com- communist. Communist. <laughs> Probably oh, communist, too. Uh, Levi, you're going to take the next section. I'm getting worn out. Alex Lowe, a South China Morning Post columnist, pointed out that the United States has rarely distinguished between diplomacy and war since its founding. 
It overthrew democratically elected governments in many developing countries in the 20th century and immediately replaced them with pro-American puppet regimes. Today, in Ukraine, Iraq, Afghanistan, Libya, Syria, Pakistan, and Yemen, the United States is repeating its old tactics of waging proxy, low-intensity, and drone wars. U.S. military hegemony has caused humanitarian tragedies. Since 2001, the wars and military operations launched by the United States in the name of fighting terrorism have claimed over 900,000 lives, with some 335,000 of them civilians, injured millions, and displaced tens of millions. The 2003 Iraq War resulted in some 200,000 to 250,000 civilian deaths, including over 16,000 directly killed by the U.S. military, and left more than a million homeless. The United States has created 37 million refugees around the world. Since 2012, the number of Syrian refugees alone has increased tenfold. Between 2016 and 2019, 33,584 civilian deaths were documented in the Syrian fightings, including 3,833 killed by U.S.-led coalition bombings, half of them women and children. The public broadcasting service, PBS, reported on November 9, 2018, that the airstrikes launched by the U.S. forces in Raqqa alone killed 1,600 Syrian civilians. The two decades-long war in, Afga in Afghanistan devastated the country. A total of 47,000 Afghan civilians and 66,000 to 69,000 Afghan soldiers and police officers unrelated to the September 11th attacks were killed in U.S. military operations, and more than 10 million people were displaced. The, U the war in Afghanistan destroyed the foundations of, of economic development there and plunged the Afghan people into destitution. After the, quote, Kabul debacle in 2021, the United States announced that it would freeze some $9.5 billion in assets belonging to the Afghan Central Bank, a move considered as, quote, pure looting. In September 2022, Turkish Interior Minister Suleyman Soylu commented at a rally that the United States has waged a proxy war in Syria, turned Afghanistan into an opium field and a heroin factory, thrown Pakistan into turmoil, and left Libya in incessant civil unrest. The United States does whatever it takes to rob and enslave the people of any country with underground resources. The United States has also adopted appalling methods in war. During the Korean War, the Vietnam War, the Gulf War, the Kosovo, the Kosovo War, the war in Afghanistan, and the Iraq War, the United States used massive quantities of chemical and biological weapons, as well as cluster bombs, fuel air bombs, graphite bombs, and depleted uranium bombs, causing enormous damage on civilian facilities, countless civilian casualties, and lasting environmental pollution. And they don't even mention, like, the lasting environment, I mean, um, civilian casualties, like the, the children who will be born with defects, like the people who will mm -hmm. contract, like, different types of cancer, like, for generations upon generations. I love this line. The United States has waged a war in Syria, turned Afghanistan to opium field and heroin factory, thrown Pakistan to turmoil, and left Libya in incessant civil unrest. You could replace the word Great Britain in there for the United States and just place it back another hundred years. Mm -hmm. I mean, the story stays the same. Capital will be capital, right? Mm. Right, is... another, another dead on section, like just fucking every word of it. It's just like they they just nail it, and of course, just being very concise, like they're not like going into super detail. It's like this is like great podcasting material. It's like well, I really wanted to read this on some format or another. Like, yeah. Maybe what do you even say about it, right? Other than oh, yeah, like damn, like I don't know. I mean, I know this got posted in our group chat. We were circling around. I was like skimming through it the other day and I was like, I'm going to have to find a reason and just an excuse to read this to everyone because I feel like I could link this, I could post it on the meme page, I could like spread it around, but who's really going to sit down and take the time to read through all of this? And I feel like even just sitting here reading about it and there's like bullshit and talking about it, we'll get it out to a lot more people. It's just like, 
you got to understand this. Like, this is literally how the rest of the world sees America. And when you just like kind of instinctively spout some shit about like, yeah, I know the U.S. is really bad and I really do oppose U.S. imperialism. But like Russia is also really bad and definitely doing some imperialism. It's like I cannot fucking take you seriously because you do not understand like the shit is in this like mm-hmm. page and a half of like what the U.S. has been doing to everyone for its entire existence. It's like. You don't yeah. understand what U.S. hegemony has meant for the rest of the fucking world for the past 100 years and counting, at least, right? I mean, and just, again, it, it's an obvious point, but, like, it just nails the the hypocrisy just by, you know, highlighting that, you know, the U.S. is the only stockpile of chemical weapons, and they fucking refuse to do anything about it, right? And then the result is dropping, you know, depleted uranium bombs on cities in Iraq, and kids fucking 20 years from now are going to have birth defects from this shit. Like, y'all need to get really fucking angry about this, because mm-hmm. this is this is what your country does. This is what you pay your tax money to go do, more than anything. So again, to get a, a little further back from this uh, material and sort of thinking about it as a piece of, uh, as a document, like I'm just fascinated by the fact that this just focuses primarily on North Africa, the Near East, and the Middle East. I mean, the same list of the laundry list of deaths and destruction could be said about South America, Central America, the Caribbean, the Far East. I, I, I just find it fascinating that the the focus is on North Africa and the Middle East, and I, I think that's for very legitimate, real reasons of influence. I mean, that's where China is. That's where it has mm-hmm. the greatest chance for influence. That's why they're, I mean, they're trying to build bricks, right? Right. I mean, how many deaths can be attributed to the ongoing blockade in Cuba? Or how many deaths can be attributed to the economy that exists in South Korea? Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it goes on and on and on and on. I guess oh, Korea a, is mentioned. I mean, it's a good point because it's not just... As much as we agree with this, I mean... It's as much as it is like a historical record in a lot of things, it is still a political document, right? Like this is still, you know, this is still the the politics going on, right? So you can see how maybe this plays into, and I don't even think it's necessarily a bad thing, but like specific areas of focus for China right now. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. They also have pointed out, they they have mentioned South America and the U.S.'s influence there. They have mentioned that. They're just not as specific. I just want to clarify, I'm not bringing this up as a criticism of the document, just to say, no, no. To say that all history, period, is political. Mm-hmm. The information that they're providing in this document, even as Mike said, is very brief, which means that they're leaving out a lot of information, and they're not yeah. doing that by accident. It's all very intentional. So I think it's good to think about what are the intentions here, because even what was said earlier, it's, it's a very idea-based, calm a uh, very pointed document. None of this was written out by accident. Mm-hmm. And they could have been as snarky as William Bloom usually gets. But I don't know enough William Bloom to know why that's funny. Shit. Oh, he's he's very snarky. You got to read <laughs> Killing Hope. Oh, okay. I think you're just supposed to smile so that the listener doesn't know you don't get it. <laughs> oh, well. Um, so this next section here, economic hegemony, looting and exploitation. After World War II, the United States led efforts to set up the Bretton Woods system, the International Monetary Fund, and the World Bank, which together with the Marshall Plan, formed the international monetary system centered around the U.S. dollar. In addition, the U.S. the United States has also established international, sorry, institutional hegemony in the international economic and financial sector by manipulating the weighted voting, the weighted voting systems, rules, and arrangements of international organizations, including quote approval by 85% majority in its domestic trade laws and regulations. 
By taking advantage of the dollar status as a major international reserve currency, the United States is basically collecting, quote, seniorage from around the world and using its control over international organizations, it coerces other countries into serving America's political and economic strategy. The United States exploits the world's wealth with the help of, quote, seniorage. It costs only about 17 cents to produce a $100 bill. But other countries had to pony up $100 of, actual, $100 of actual goods in order to obtain one. It was pointed out more than half a century ago that the United States enjoyed exorbitant privilege, its exorbitant privilege and deficit without tears created by its dollar by its dollar and used the worthless paper note to plunder the resources and factories of other nations. I mean, that literally is the case. It's like, if you try to explain that to people and say that the U.S. is just printing money and it costs them 17 cents to make $100 and another country has to then actually give $100 worth of something, whether it's labor or goods, to get the $100 and they're doing it to pay for something that was created out of thin air almost... It almost sounds like too unbelievable for people to really accept and that the U.S. could just kind of dominate the world that way. Um, but it is kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. This is why sanctions are actually so impactful, right, especially when it comes to the financial sense because it really comes down to access to dollars. And when the global economy is predicated upon the flow of dollars, limiting access to that restricts that country's ability to actually buy goods when they're most easily bought and paid for with dollars. And if you can't get those dollars, you can't get those goods. And that's why sanctions fucking kill people, right? And that's mm -hmm. why US dollar hegemony is something that, you know, it's a very, it, it sounds like almost like a fucking, like it's a banality of evil kind of thing, right? Like it's like, well, well, well don't they have their own currency? But no, you know what I mean? It, everything is predicated upon this. Everything is backed by this. And this is why it's so impactful. That's why it's so important we see all these uh, um, articles going around right now about how, like, Iraq or someone else is about to start trading oil for um, in, in yuan, right, instead of dollars. We see that hegemony going away. But I wanted to point out, too, um, since Brandon's not here, I feel like he would have pointed this out. So I'm going to channel my inner, inner Brandon right here and represent him. How kind of uh, jarring it is to see them use the idiom pony up. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's good. Let's go, Brandon, unironically. <laughs> just to build off of really how shocking all of this is, I mean, there was a great philosopher that in 1867 actually published a book that stated pretty much what we're all saying. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it's in the third chapter. Uh, and in <laughs> case anybody listening is interested, we're actually going over that book. Uh, it is capital chapter three. It goes over the contradictions of money as the value form and the commodity form. Uh, so hit that subscribe button. <laughs> Levi getting the plugs in there. It's super Love fun it. time. It's the most exciting stuff. It is not, uh, but it's incredibly important. Well, it's no, it better cool, after though. chapters one and two. Let's be real. Uh, I'd throw, I would throw a three in there as well. Yeah. Okay. All right, let me get back to another exciting document here. So uh, <laughs> the hegemony of the U.S. dollar is the main source of, the, of instability and uncertainty in the world economy. During the COVID-19 pandemic, the United States abused its global, global financial hegemony and injected trillions of dollars into the global market, leaving other countries, especially emerging economies, to pay the price. In 2022, the Fed ended its ultra-easy monetary policy and turned to aggressive interest rate hike, causing turmoil in the international financial, in international financial market and substantial depreciation of other countries such as the euro, many of which dropped to a 20-year low. As a result, a large number of developing countries were challenged by high inflation, Currency, currency depreciation, and capital outflows. This was exactly what Nixon's Secretary of the Treasury, John Connolly, once remarked 
with self-satisfaction yet sharp, sharp precision that, quote, the dollar is our currency, but it is your problem. With its control over international economic and financial organizations, the United States imposes additional conditions to their assistance to other countries. In order to reduce obstacles to U.S. capital inflow and speculation, the recipient countries are required to advance financial liberalization and open up financial markets so that their economic policies would fall in line with America's strategy. According to to the Review of International Political Economy, along with the 1,550 debt relief programs extended by the IMF to its 131 member countries from 1985 to 2014, as many as 55,465 additional political conditions had been attached. The United States willfully suppresses its opponents with economic coercion. In the 1980s, to eliminate the economic threat posed by Japan and to control and use the latter in service of America's strategic goal of confronting the Soviet Union and dominating the world, the United States leveraged its hegemonic financial power against Japan and concluded the Plaza Accord. As a result, the yen was pushed up and Japan was pressed to open up its financial market and reform its financial system. The Plaza Accord dealt a heavy blow to the growth momentum of the Japanese economy, leaving Japan to what was later called three lost decades. I mean, people, I don't think remember that, and Ben Norton mentioned this as well, but there was a time in the 80s that people thought that Japan was going to be like the new rising power. It's just like the way that they're talking about China now. It was like this really competitive thing. And it's weird to think of now because of how cozy the U.S. and Japan are now, and how they seem to be just like kind of aligning against, you know, Russia and China. But yeah, uh, I mean, this was oh, the era of the the three tigers, right? Taiwan, yeah. uh, Japan, and Shanghai. It's just uh, another point that I think about this, like especially think about Japan, and I think about the depreciation of the euro, right? And again, Mike, as you mentioned, that you know these folks are ostensibly our friends. Right. And it's just I think it was Kissinger. America doesn't have friends. They have assets. Right. Um, And why I think the U.S. was able to actually stymie the growth of the Japanese economy so easily was because of the tendrils that were put into Japan following World War Two, the time period in which essentially the U.S. built Japan up in its own image, but as a subordinate, not an equal. Right. Yeah, they gave them the humiliation of having universal health care and mm-hmm. a, a thriving social state and stuff. Bastards. But no, uh, no, no real political independence in a lot of ways. No military for one. Right. Uh, so they go in here. America's economic and financial, financial hegemony has become a geopolitical weapon. Doubling down on unilateral sanctions and, quote, long-arm jurisdiction, the United States has enacted such domestic laws as the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, the Global Magnitsky Human Rights Accountability, Accountability Act, and the Countering America's Adversaries Through Sanctions Act. That's got to be like, what are those acronyms? C-A-A-T? No. I'm always looking for like the funny acronyms. <laughs> like I'm waiting for like Republican to do like the Freedom Act, and it's like fucking real. At, like, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. They would, they... Well, it's like the Patriot Act is a, is a retroactive acronym. Oh, it is? Oh, yeah. I don't know what it stands for. It's like protecting American something. E. (laughs) (laughs) The Trump administration alone has imposed more than 3,900 sanctions, which means three sanctions per day. So far, the United... So I guess this was written during his administration. Mm -hmm. So far, the United States has or has imposed or had or has imposed economic sanctions on nearly 40 countries across the world, including Cuba, China, Russia, the DPRK, Iran, and Venezuela, affecting nearly half of the world's population. The U.S. has turned itself into the United States of sanctions. 
and a long-arm jurisdiction has been reduced to nothing but a tool for the United States to use its means of the state power to suppress economic competitors and interfere in normal international business. This is the serious departure from the principles of a liberal market economy that the United States has long boasted. Yeah, I, I, I was like, that's funny. Like, I, I right. assume that they're being a little snarky here, but I think it's easy enough to disagree that they never had any serious interest in liberal economic policy. No. Right, and you also have to think about the, the nebulosity of what liberal economic policy even means. That man just dropped nebulosity on a podcast. Damn. I think nebulousness is actually the right word, but I was going <laughs> to... Still, though, like... You didn't have to say it. <laughs> it works great either way. I like it. Yeah. yeah, you didn't have to correct yourself. You could have just let it ride. That's the wonderful thing about communists is we always use big words. That's right. No, that's definitely 1,000% snarky at the end there, and it's really funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. Oh, yeah, they thought they were being really funny with the United States of sanctions. But also, this wasn't <laughs> totally written in the Trump administration because they talk about 2022 uh earlier they mentioned stuff from that oh yeah true um you know this this could have been uh just a holdover from that that didn't get caught in the editing um or uh, it could just be like a a mistranslation of of um conjugations easy enough i do it myself <laughs> and i speak english um all right so there are two short sections i guess i can try to wrap these up really quick so um let's see technological hegemony monopoly and suppression the United States seeks to deter other countries' scientific, technological, and economic development by wielding monopoly power, suppression measures, and, technolo- and technology restrictions in high-tech fields. The United States monopolizes intellectual property in the name of protection. Taking advantage of the weak position of other countries, especially developing ones, on intellectual property rights and the inter- institutional vacancy in relevant fields, the United States reaps excessive profits through monopoly. In 1994, the United States pushed forward the Agreement on Trade Relations Aspects of Intellectual Property Rights, the TRIPS Act, forcing the Americanized process and standards of intellectual property protection in an attempt to solidify its monopoly on technology. In the 80s, to contain the development of Japan's semiconductor industry, the United States launched the 301 investigation, built bargaining power in bilateral negotiations through multilateral agreements, threatened to label Japan as conducting unfair trade, and imposed retaliatory retaliatory tariffs, forcing Japan to sign the U.S.-Japan Semiconductor Agreement. As a result, Japanese semiconductor enterprises were almost completely driven out of global competition, and their market share dropped from 50% to 10%. I can't believe the Japanese people just stood for that. Like, I can't mm-hmm. believe there wasn't like just out... Uh, I don't know, it blows my mind. Meanwhile, with the support of the U.S. government, a large number of U.S. semiconductor enterprises took the opportunity and grabbed a larger market share. The United just States real quick li- on the... Sorry, on the IP okay. thing, one of like the reactionary talking points that I've that's been going around for years um, has been, uh, well, China steals our IP as oh, like always a matter do, yeah. of, as a matter of policy, right? And you know, you get to think about it, I guess, on like, uh, I guess, a moral level, and it's just like, who gives a fuck? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. This is just a capitalist protection. It's 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 totally made up thing. IP, right? Yeah. Like you know, technology should be used to better human existence right and it just show it's just one of those things in the capitalist system that you can just look at and be like wait wh- why why do we have that you know and it's just to protect profits and shit like that so you know what china can have our fucking ip for all i can for all i care you know what I mean? doing better things with it than we were right uh they go on the united states politicizes weaponizes technological sorry politicizes and weaponizes technological issues and uses them as ideological tools Overstretching the concept of national security, 
the United States mobilized state power to suppress and sanction Chinese com- the Chinese company Huawei, which I'm still pissed about because I fucking missed my Huawei phone. That was the best <laughs> one I ever had. Um, restricted the entry of Huawei products into the U.S. market, cut off its supply of chips and operating systems, and coerced other countries to ban Huawei from undertaking local 5G network construction. It even talked Canada into unwarranted unwarrantedly detaining Huawei's CFO, Meng Wanzhou, for nearly three years, which is fucking mind-blowing. <clears throat> the United States has fabricated a slew of excuses to clamp down on China's high-tech enterprises with global competitiveness and has put more than 1,000 Chinese enterprises on sanctions lists. In addition, the United States has also imposed controls on biotechnology, artificial intelligence, and other high-end technologies, reinforced export restrictions, lightened, tightened investment screening, suppressed Chinese social media apps such as TikTok and WeChat, and lobbied the Netherlands and Japan to restrict exports of chips and related equipment or technology to China. So real quick, just because I have an anecdote that actually backs all this up. So I work, um, the technology that I work with, the company that I work for, does some kind of like industrial telecom stuff. And I've actually been getting requests from some customers to basically sign off that our product doesn't include like chips from Huawei or components from Huawei and su- several other other com- you know Chinese companies that have been identified as like probably like a national security threat. So it's like a real fucking thing. Which is hilarious because sorry, just I want to like point out real quick like Nick you're being cagey about your work as you should like you don't want to fucking dox yourself in a podcast but like I know you like I was at your house I talked to you and like I asked you about your work cuz I was curious and like it's totally fucking innocuous. Like the shit you do is like yeah. people are just trying to like measure like their fucking products somewhere out in the field and make sure that their equipment is okay. And you help them do that. And people are just like, I'm going to make sure the shit that's measuring my cow fence isn't like fucking made in China. Or whatever. Like you guys are being ridiculous. Like chill. Like, yeah. Sorry. It's just like, don't worry. This stuff is all American. The NSA is the only person recording you here. It's like, what is your concern here? <laughs> yeah. Uh, China doesn't care about you. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, The United States has also practiced double standards in its policy on China-related technological professionals. To... No, I'm sorry. I did skip a paragraph. The United States has fabricated a slew of excuses to clamp down China's high-tech enterprises with... No, I did do that one. I did that one. Sorry. Fuck. (laughs) Now I really looked dumb. (laughs) Editing. Yeah, I know. The United States has also practiced double standards in its policy on China-related technological professionals. To sideline and suppress Chinese researchers, since June 2018, visa validity has been shortened for Chinese standards, sorry, shortened for Chinese students majoring in certain high-tech-related disciplines. Repeated cases have occurred where Chinese scholars and students going to the United States for exchange programs and study were unjustifiably denied and harassed, and large-scale investigation on Chinese scholars working in the United States was carried out. The United States solidifies its technological monopoly in the name of protecting democracy. By building small blocks on technologies such as the, quote, Chips Alliance and Clean Network, the United States has put democracy and human rights labels on on high technology, which is hilarious, and turned technological issues into political and ideological issues so as to fabricate excuses for its technological blockade against other countries. In May 2019, the United States enlisted enlisted 32 countries to the Prague 5G Security Conference in the Czech Republic and issued the Prague proposal in an attempt to exclude China's 5G products. In April 2020, then-U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo announced the, quote, 5G Clean Path, a plan designed to build technological alliance in the 5G field with partners bonded by their shared ideology on democracy and the need to protect, quote, cybersecurity. The measures, in essence, are the U.S.'s attempts to maintain its technological hegemony through technological alliances. 
the United States abuses its technological hegemony by carrying out cyber attacks and eavesdropping. The United States has long been notorious as an empire, sorry, as quote, empire of hackers, blamed for its rampant acts of cyber theft around the world, which is ironically what it accuses China of doing all the time. Mm-hmm. It has all kinds of means to enforce pervasive cyber attacks and surveillance, including using analog base station signals to access mobile phones for data theft, manipulating mobile apps, infiltrating cloud servers, and stealing through undersea cables. The list goes on. U.S. surveillance is indiscriminate. All can be targets of its surveillance, be they rivals or allies, even leaders of allied countries such as former German Chancellor Angela Merkel and several French presidents. Cyber surveillance and attacks launched by the United States such as, quote, PRISM, Dirtbox, ew, ew, Dirtbox. (laughs) Irritant horn and telescreen mm-hmm. operation are all proof that the United States is closely monitoring its allies and partners. Such eavesdropping on allies and partners has already caused worldwide outrage. Julian Assange, the founder of WikiLeaks, a website that has exposed U.S. surveillance programs, said that, quote, Do not expect a global surveillance super- superpower to act with honor or respect. There is only one rule. There are no rules. Hmm. Yeah. It's interesting to me that of all these sections, and, you know, China does have justifiable grievances on the military front, the economic front, which they mentioned themselves briefly. But this is the most China-centric focus um, section that we've read so far. And I just think that's kind of interesting, you know, like, because there's definitely multiple, I mean, there's a long list of grievances from China specifically with respect to military hegemony with all of the military bases surrounding them, right? But this seems to be the one that really gets their goat um, a lot more so than anything. And it's because they're focused on development and technology, right? Mm-hmm. More so than anything. This also seems to be the place where they're going over their skis a little bit. I mean, what country isn't surveying their allies and their rivals? I mean, Cuba's spying on its rivals and allies. That's just how a state works in this world. So what are they trying to claim here? I mean, I know they're claiming that U.S. is the hegemony, so they're doing it to a greater extent. But are they trying to claim that they don't? That's, I don't know. That's just straight bullshit. <laughs> I also just think it's funny when people like bring up China and they just do it in scare quotes and they say, "Oh, don't you know they're like spying all the citizens and you like can't say anything in China?" I'm like, you can't say anything here, bro. Like you're literally making jokes online about saying stuff in Minecraft because you know you can't say shit uh-huh. online here. Like I don't know what to tell you. Like you don't live in a free country that you claim to. Like I don't know. It just gets um, back to my fascination with who is who are they targeting. Uh, as an audience for this document i'm just it's it's really all over the place yeah i feel like this is written for me to be honest like i feel like this whole document <laughs> is just like written for me personally it's um, a good propaganda piece for us that's for sure for sure and yeah. we wrap up this last section here in the conclusion this is real short this is already running long tonight so the last one is cultural hegemony spreading false narratives the global expansion of american culture is an important part of is sorry is an important part of its external strategy the United States has often used cultural tools to strengthen and maintain its hegemony in the world. The United States embeds American values in its products, such as movies. American values and lifestyle are a, t- are, sorry, are a tied product to its movies and TV shows, publications, media content, and programs by the government-funded nonprofit cultural institutions. It thus shapes a cultural and public opinion space in which American culture reigns and maintains a cultural hegemony. In his article, The Americanization of the World, John Yemma, an American scholar, exposed the real weapons in the U.S. cultural expansion. The, Holly- the Hollywood, the image design factories on Madison Avenue, and the production lines of Mattel Company and Coca-Cola. There are various vehicles in the United States the United States uses to keep its cultural hegemony. American movies are the most used. 
and now occupy more than 70% of the world's market share. The United States skillfully exploits its cultural sorry, skillfully exploits its cultural diversity to appeal to various to appeal to various ethnicities. When Hollywood movies descend upon the world, descend on the world, they scream the American values tied to them. American cultural hegemony not only shows itself in, quote, direct intervention, but also in, quote, media infiltration and as a trumpet for the world. U.S.-dominated Western media has a particularly important role in shaping global public opinion in favor of U.S. meddling in the internal affairs of other countries. The U.S. government strictly censors all social media companies and demands their obedience. Twitter CEO, CEO Elon Musk admitted on December 27, 2022, that all social media platforms work with the U.S. government to censor content, reported Fox Business News Network. Sorry, Fox Business Network. Public opinion in the United States is subject to government intervention to restrict all unfavorable remarks. Google often makes pages disappear, which how many people do you think realize even, like, do you think know that? Like, they have no idea. Like, people, I was mentioning earlier how people just kind of, like, talk in coded language when they're talking online, but, like, it's just common knowledge that your phone is listening to you. Even if you think it's just doing it to, like, give you ads but like everyone just knows that your shit is listening to you all the time and it's like again like accusing china of being like the big scary listening machine all the time i don't know Mm -hmm. i mean you have that quote from i think it was the alphabet ceo saying we're not we don't take we don't remove articles we just take them off the page yeah so i got a little distracted by this one john yemma as an american scholar Mm -hmm. um the citation they have for this is a document published by China. He's not an American scholar. I mean, it's not meant to distract this, but I had never heard of this cultural scholar, and that's something I study. It's just weird that they would choose somebody that doesn't appear to be of any standing when they could have just as easily chosen somebody that does have standing to make the similar point. Mm-hmm. I'd be curious to see uh, you know, that book, The Americanization of the World. I wonder who yeah, published it. Yeah, I was just about more. to Google that. Go for it. Uh, let me continue here while you do that. Let's see. Where did I leave off? Um, the U.S. Department of Defense manipulates social media. In December 2022, the Intercept, an independent U.S. investigative website, revealed that in July 2017, U.S. Central Command Officer Nathaniel Kaler instructed Twitter's, Twitter's public policy team to augment the presence of 52 Arabic language accounts on a list he sent, six of which were to be given priority. One of the six was dedicated to justifying U.S. drone attacks in Yemen, such as by claiming that the attacks were precise and killed only terrorists, not civilians. Following Killer's directive, Twitter put those Arabic language accounts on a, quote, whitelist to amplify certain messages. So they got the Elon Musk treatment. <laughs> but also that's fucked up because, like, the whole, the whole Arab Spring thing that everybody thought was such a fucking grassroots movement, like, very obviously was not. And it's just like, I don't know. Uh, the United States practices double standards on the freedom of the press. It brutally suppresses and silences media of other countries by various means. The United States and, and Europe bar mainstream Russian media, such as Russia Today and, the Sp- and, Sp- and, sorry, and Sputnik, from their countries. Platforms such as Twitter, Facebook, and YouTube openly restrict official accounts of Russia, Netflix, Apple, and Google have removed Russian channels and applications from their services and app stores. Unprecedented draconian censorship is imposed on Russia-related contents. The United States abuses its cultural hegemony to instigate, quote, peaceful evolution in socialist countries. It sets up news media and cultural outfits targeting socialist countries. It pours staggering amounts of public funds into radio and TV networks to support their ideological infiltration, and these mouthpieces bombard socialist countries in dozens of languages with inflammatory propaganda day and night. The United States uses misinformation as a spear to attack other countries and has built an internet industrial chain around it. 
there are groups and individuals making up stories and peddling them worldwide to mislead public opinion with the support of nearly limitless financial resources. And I just want to shout out this person who's been DMing me for about a week with fucking username like XYZZYZZ telling me how fucking bad China is and sending me Radio Free Asia article after article. And I'm just, you're a fucking clown. Like, you're a dumb fucking person. I'm sorry. Like, I hate to, like, I'm sorry this is the way you got to find out, but you're a stupid person. You're just gullible. <laughs> Stop sending me CIA propaganda. It's, it's like RFA. XYZ. I cannot take you seriously. Like, <laughs> they literally uh, just make shit up. I mean, they all got is... the haircut or nobody got the haircut. Fucking pick one. <laughs> this part is interesting to me because like, it ties it all together. Like, you, you know, you, you mentioned the Arab Spring and they mentioned it earlier on, right, in the political hegemony part of this, right? And like, you know, we've got this broken down into discrete sections, but you have to acknowledge that these things all work together, right? It's kind of like an interesting, like, base and superstructure kind of type analysis of imperial of U.S. hegemony and imperialism in terms of how all these things kind of work together. And, like, you can't underestimate, like, the cultural one. I mean, I don't know if I necessarily agree with it, but I think it's a, it's a good point that, like, I think Matt Chrisman made it um, about how the, the cultural hegemony is one of the strongest pillars remaining of, you know, U.S. hegemony and U.S. empire just because of how pervasive it is. And I think there's some truth to that, um, despite, you know, maybe perception about how we act on a global stage. I think there probably is still some uh, fondness and like genuine like of like American, uh, you know, media um media creations that come out and things like that, right? So it is really important to grapple with. And, you know, on China's side, when you look at it historically in terms of how the U.S. has infiltrated states and things like that, you can see why maybe they don't necessarily just let everything in with unqu- without, you know, without question, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I have the conclusion here that I want to read, but I just want to say like real quick, like, I feel like the U.S. has kind of adopted this thing, at least internally, where... They're content with how having people be opposed to the U.S. itself. Like, you can have your own citizens be opposed to your government, your own military, its actions abroad. But as long as they just think the other countries are still a little bit worse, it's that's just good enough. Like, that really is where people are right now because you have a good amount of the mainstream population even. Like, even left or right, like, you have on the left, you have liberals and some social democrat types like the Bernie bros and everything who say that they genuinely oppose U.S. hegemony in all its forms, they don't like the military, they want all that shit scaled back, and then you talk to the right, and they will even say the same thing, and they end up voting for Trump because they think, again, that he's going to fucking do that somehow, even though he was in for years and didn't fucking do it then. It's like, there's people who legit want the U.S. to scale back its control over the world, and they believe for various reasons why it has that, like, usually based on racism. But it's... It's that. It's really that one thing that allows them to keep doing these fucking heinous things because people still believe, like, yeah, I would like the military to be scaled back, but I just don't want Russia to be stronger. Or I just don't want be China want China to be stronger as a result because they just think that that is so much worse. And it's so mind-blowing. And that's why I'm so happy to just repeat over and over again all the things that are laid out in this document because it's just mm-hmm. plain facts. Like They're just spitting facts in this whole thing, and I love it. You have to ask yourself, too, you have to ask these people, like we talked about right before we started recording, if China were to somehow become uh, stronger or to surpass whatever that means, like specifically because it doesn't really mean anything, if that were to happen, how would that change the lives of 99% of the people in the United States? 
It would not. All right, let me uh, read this conclusion here, and then we'll wrap it up tonight since we're going way long. So, sorry. Hold on. All right. So, conclusion. With a just cause... Well, sorry. While a just cause wins its champion a wide support, an unjust one condemns its pursuer to be an outcast. The hegemonic, domineering, and bullying practices of using strength to intimidate the weak, taken from others by force and subterfuge, and playing zero-sum games are exerting grave harm. The historical trends of peace, development, cooperation, and mutual benefit are unstoppable. The United States has been overriding truth with its power and trampling justice to serve self-interest. These unilateral, egoistic, and regressive hegemonic practices have drawn growing, intense criticism and opposition from the international community. Countries need to respect each other and treat each other as equals. Big countries should behave in a manner befitting their status and take that lead and take the lead in pursuing a new model of state-to-state relations featuring dialogue and partnership, not confrontation or alliance. China opposes all forms of hegemonism and power and power politics and rejects interference in other countries' internal affairs. The United States must conduct self serious soul searching. It must critically examine what it has done, let go of its arrogance and prejudice, and quit its hegemonic, domineering, and bullying practices. I mean, <laughs> there you have it. The last thing I want to say about that conclusion is it's fantastic, and I want to sort of shout out my buddy Phil, who was on one of our comrades, uh, Cars and Comrades episodes about Walter Ruther. And he recently said in a group chat that I had with him, he was like, you know, we're actually doing billionaires a favor if we just take all their wealth, because as they say, like more money, more problems, like these people aren't happy people. Like they got all these problems because of all this money and wealth. It's just like, we're actually doing them a favor. But also there was somebody else that's like a legit Marxist. I, I want to say it's like Walter Rodney or somebody who says like, in like how Europe underdeveloped Africa that like when oppressors do this, they actually, oh no, it might be like uh free air. And pedagogy of the oppressed. I just saw it on like on Instagram. I'm, it's not like I'm reading these books. I'm seeing these on memes, just to be fair. But um, they say that like when oppressors start oppressing an entire culture of people like this, they actually dehumanize themselves too. Like they literally are lowering themselves. And then when you free them from doing that to someone else, you're freeing them as well. Like when you overthrow the oppressors, even violently, even if you have to like you know uh, on a live a few, you are actually freeing the oppressors as well as the oppressed. So it's good news. Like. <laughs> have you heard the good news it's <laughs> good there are people out there on the internet who have taken this document like word for word and think it is casting the united states in a good light mistakenly they don't think it's intending to do so but they are taking it in like uh, there's a reddit thread that says can china stop can china ever stop making the united states look based this is our neoliberal right no it was something else it was our uh i just had it um, non-credible diplomacy, whatever the fuck that means. I mean, yeah, that that just speaks to the fact that what they're claiming is true. So they recognize these facts as being accurate, so they have to then approve them as opposite mm -hmm. of the conclusions that are being made. I mean, that's the best way to win that kind of argument is to say, I agree with everything you're saying. Your conclusion is wrong. Mm -hmm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's a poor interpretation of it. <sighs> Yeah, so last time I'll harp on this, but it's just like, it's interesting what's not included in this article. Um, I, I think I already pointed to a few of them. South America is very vaguely mentioned. Uh, but the biggest one that's, I don't think, mentioned at all is environment or plans to protect the environment in the United States, outsized destruction of the environment. You would think China would have a pretty good argument to make for their system mm -hmm. uh, in the world in terms of the impending environmental holocaust. 
And I think this might get to the point that I, I think that they're trying to speak to North African and oil-rich nations. Because I, I don't think that they would be interested in hearing about environmental causes either. Maybe I'm reading too much into this. I don't know. I'm all, I have no more takes. I, can't, I have no more <laughs> things to say. I, I've read too much. I'm, I'm out. All took out. Yeah. yeah. Taked out as well. Yeah, I just, I really just wanted to get into, like I said, before we started recording, there's obvious tensions ramping up with China. Uh, the U.S. really wants to just stoke a war with China by any means necessary. It's always bound to be over Taiwan. I think we all kind of all see that coming. I think we probably have a few years before it actually uh, starts really getting hot and heavy. But yeah, this just came out recently, and I just thought it was a great response because I don't really have any other takes other than no war with China. Like, Nat, you posted mm-hmm. it. I think you fucking tweeted it, and it actually started to get some fucking virality. Like, people were, like, reposting your thing. It's like, no war with China, just all caps, yeah. several I, times. It's like, I don't know how else over, to man. say it. Yeah, I honestly don't give a fuck what your analysis of China is at this point in time, as long as part of it is no war with China. I, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't care, you know, but this is the most important thing right now. And, you know, to buy into certain narratives and just that will only serve to kind of gin up, you know, rage and manufacture consent for that war just ain't it. So. And I, and I say, I say no war with China fully believing that the U S would lose. And I'm opponent of the U S it's like, yeah. I'm not saying this out of like, it's out of anti-imperialist interests. It's like it would actually be better for anti-imperialism if the U.S. went to war with China because it would lose, and that is imperialism in a nutshell, right there, just over. But like a lot of people are going to suffer in the meantime, and yeah. probably me being one of them because I can't fucking defect that fast. Like I don't know. Sorry, Levi. <laughs> yeah, revolutionary defeatism only goes so far. Yeah, yeah. I love this focus on Taiwan because uh, anybody remember last year when uh, India started attacking China? No, that barely <laughs> hit. That barely hit registers, but yeah, India started openly committing military acts against China on their border. The fact was they didn't use, you know, lethal force. They used less than lethal force, so only a few people died. But they were firing weapons at Chinese soldiers from Indian soldiers. Oh. And it it flew so far under the radar. I mean, that is where it's going to pop off, honestly. That's my belief. Taiwan doesn't seem like it's going to happen. India, they've already fired. They're interested in this war. So interesting. And then where, the where does the United States fall it. on that? I mean, do we... Well, yeah, we arm India. But, I mean, they, they haven't been cooperating with us in Russia. So where, where do we land on that? We being the United States. Mm-hmm. It's a little less neat than Taiwan, which I think is why people like talking about Taiwan. That being the, the state. We should look into that. Yeah. That's news to me. Yeah, the uh, the world's most populous country invading the second most populous country is big news, but not in the United States. <laughs> no, I got I literally like you said I did not remember that even happened. Like I got no takes on it because I had no idea. All right, you guys want to wrap it up? Yo, Let's do it. Hell yeah! All right, so everybody go listen to the intervention. Go listen to Collective Action Comics, and uh, sorry, Collective Action Comics, Comics. <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm all talked out, dude. I cannot talk any fucking more. And yeah. Uh, yeah, maybe there'll be like another turn left step at some point, and you can listen to that too. But <laughs> <laughs> see you guys. All right, cool. Later. Thanks, everybody. Adios, paisanos. Bye.